what film you're going to show in? Uh, well, it was going to be Minions, but it's now going to be going to have to be Despicable Me, as Minions isn't on Netflix anymore. This but is this is jeopardising my entire parenting strategy. But there are Minions in Despicable Me, so it's yeah, but, allowable. But he's seen Minions the film several times, so he he understands the plot. Whereas I don't know what the plot is to dis, to Despicable Me. There might be a lot of nudity. I I don't know. I haven't vetted it. <laughs> well, given given that the Minions were introduced in Despicable Me and then flowered further in Minions, I think you're going to be okay. I don't but think that's not any, anything you know racy, and then they tone it down. For yeah, a but the boys the boys not a fool. He knows this is not the it's headline act. Is yeah. not the Minions. Yeah. The minions are the minions of Despicable Me. So again, he's going to realise, hang on a minute, you've, you've sold me a dud here. I mean, to be honest, he's already, he's already demonstrating more restlessness than he would do yeah. if Minions was on. Mm. You know what, Rory? We'll wait four years and see how Hugh assesses it then when Bodie is kicking up a massive stink about the fact that he's got to watch Toy Story 6 rather than Toy Story 5, which he's slightly more familiar with. Or because Hugh has braised his peas rather than roasting them or whatever. <laughs> or so Bodie, can watch, Bodie can watch a repeat of the 1995 FA Cup final <laughs> if he wants to. Well, we do need to try and get him to sleep. And kicking up a stink oh! is currently what, what he's doing exclusively at the moment. So, Rory, at some point you're going to have to go. So, I'm magically you will, you will just disappear and people have to figure out whether, when that is. This is Set Piece Menu, the podcast where four friends talk football over food. I'm Hugh Ferris. Joining me are Stephen Wyeth, a hazardous scholar, Rory Smith, a perilous thinker, and Andy Hinchcliffe, a dangerous intellectual, as described by Pat Nevin in his book... <laughs> Thusly. What? I'm neither of those things, and I certainly don't combine them. Dangerous Andy... intellectual? Here we go. Here it is in context. Andy Hinchcliffe had arrived early in the season from Manchester City, where Howard Kendall had been his manager. Andy, for perhaps similar reasons to me, couldn't see eye to eye with the boss, continues Pat Nevin in his autobiography. So when he arrived at Everton, he made it very clear in the press what he thought of Howard, and he didn't hold back. Just a few weeks later, Howard walked through the door of the dressing room at Goodison as the new manager. And his first words were, hello, Andy. Lovely to see you again. <laughs> he said it with a smile. And it was very funny, which Howard could often be. Mm. But I know Andy felt gutted that his big move could be scuppered after only a few weeks. Andy and I were soon the outsiders, untrusted. And as the gag went, we were considered dangerous intellectuals because we had both read a book. <laughs> There we go. Put it in context. Now that makes sense. That makes sense. No, but Pat, Pat probably was a dangerous intellectual. If I could, yes, if I could tether my wagon to him, fine. If I can be considered in the same space as Pat Nevin, absolutely. But clearly I wasn't. Well, you would have thought of a better word if you were an intellectual. Exactly. He's taking the mickey. He's taking the mickey there. But consider in the football world, yeah, if you, if you could do a crossword and you had read a book even though Gerald Sibon had ripped out the last page, the wrong page, stupid Gerald. Yeah, it, it did. Yeah, you were you were above and beyond. Uh, clarification on a point, And by the way, thanks to Andy Hellier for sending us a picture of this particular page in Pat Nevin's book uh, on Twitter because Pat hasn't sent us his book. Is it out of context, Nevin? <laughs> it is. Uh, this, this is the thing I would like clarification on. Um, so when he arrived at Everton, meaning uh, Howard Kendall, and he, Andy, made it very clear in the press what mm. he thought of Howard, and he didn't hold back. Did I? Did I? I, I famously didn't do much press. I'll have to. I'd have to check into that. Yeah, maybe it's a soccer story. Man, if you can find yeah, I'll have to check it. I'll have to check into it. But it, it's. Uh, I do remember him turning up though, and me just like head in hands, crumpled in the corner, thinking, "Oh, what?" Pro 
problem is is that you, you won't be able to Google this. You'll have to go to the library and, and go through the old newspapers on microfiche. Microfiche. That's a great word, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Chinch's I will do. Quotes. Yes. The food is Chinch's cookies. Tell us about them, Chinch. Um, I can't I can't mention the supermarket they came from, can I? But they are delicious chocolate and hazelnut chunky. The important word chunky cookies. Yeah, I don't I don't like flat, you know, basic ones. I like a chunky cookie. What you wouldn't have realized not being uh, able to see a video uh, element of this podcast is that Chinch held them like a sandwich and ate them both at once. The football is Chinch. (laughs) Do you know what we're talking about today? Uh, Is it? I think we're having a slash, aren't we? Big six, top six. We're asking if there is indeed a top six anymore. I mean, we know there are six teams that fill the top six positions in the Premier League, but, you know, is it a top six? Is it the top six with a slash in between? Capital T, capital S anymore and how does it affect how we see the premier league yes as promised on last week's show when we talked about Lionel messi in the week before the new english top flight season this is the preview ish in its second week uh, steve did suggest doing two in one week to make sure we were suitably contemporaneous i said no can't be asked uh, that is to come you can get in touch with the podcast uh, via setpiece menu at gmail.com you can also find us on twitter facebook and youtube uh, buffalo joe highland has a merch suggestion which, of course, gets on the pod because it allows me to suggest to you all that you buy some merch. Head to tpublic.com and search for SPM or Set Beast Menu. Joe says this. Dear Miami Vice, Magnum PI, Hawaii Five O, and Chips. I have not written in a while, but I am still enjoying the pod as much as ever, particularly the recent episodes on Premier League exceptionalism. Whilst I have nothing cogent to add on the football front, I do have a half-serious merch suggestion. Over the years, much has been made of Chinch's heated lunchboxes, allowing him to eat hot food with questionable aromas in many a cold gantry. May I therefore suggest an SPM chunchbox? A heated lunchbox with SPM decals. Uh, Before you know it, Rob Hawthorne, Sam Matterface, John Champion and Peter Drury will also be tucking into dubious hot lunch options, creating a cacophony of odours in gantries up and down this far aisle. Kind regards from Joe. A cacophony of odours is, is a phrase I didn't think I would ever see uh, written down. Thank you, Joe. Uh, it's not possible. Unfortunately, I... uh, not one of the options available on tpublic.com. But uh, having said that, if anyone else wants to set that up, we have the artwork. Let us know. You provide the lunchbox. We'll put his face on it. You could, however, buy yourself a lunchbox from somewhere else and a sticker from the Tea Public set piece menu pages and hey presto you've got your homemade set piece menu lunchbox. I'm not I'm not sure Peter Drew is going to go for this because I've seen his I've been very close to his eating habits. I, I can't see him tucking into a steaming fish pie. Chinch, when you distribute all your Christmas presents to your uh, fellow commentators, perhaps what? a chunch box with your picture on it would be the right, right way to go for all of okay. them. Bit expensive, but still, you're a generous guy. Uh, thanks to all of you, by the way, that have purchased an item of merchandise. However, quick question to you all. Have you also bought multiple gifts for every human you've ever met? Um, <laughs> have, you? have you? Do you know someone? Do they have something yet? If not, head to tpublic.com to have a look. Just search for Set Piece Menu, SPM, or indeed click on the link in the episode notes of this very podcast. Um, moving on to something a little bit more constructive. But if, even people that you don't know, if you were to buy them a T-shirt or a... Mo- it would start the conversation, wouldn't it? I'm very happy for nice people to do, do that. Yeah. yeah, good idea. Thanks, Chinch. Um, mm. Maybe you could be the one to start because you've got enough disposable income to help us all out as mm. we get a little slice of that particular pie. A fish pie in a chunch box. <laughs> Uh, Rand St. John has emailed about last week's episode on Lionel Messi. Thank you, Rand. Uh, Dear Spectacles, Testicles, Wallet and Watch. Uh, (laughs) Absolutely enjoy the podcast. Kudos to you four for persevering during the pandemic. I'm writing in response to the Messi Leaves Us Cold episode. I think the points you raised are great. Thank you. Thank you. 
and definitely are an indicator of where football is, but just want to share a different perspective, if I may. The panel spoke about the romantic option, but what would compare in romance to what Messi's Barcelona journey was? Here was a 13-year-old boy from Rosario taking growth hormone and making his way to the top of world football, mesmerising football fans all around. He's already done the romantic option, so he's going down the more ruthless route. After showing loyalty throughout the years to Barcelona and, of course, earning a ton of money, I'm not really fussed that he has taken the PSG route now at his age. Is it good for football? Definitely not. But that ship sailed a long time ago. Regards, Ran St. John. Rand is quite right that Lionel Messi is not responsible for football's ills by any stretch of, of the imagination. But as Chinch will testify, just because you've done romance once doesn't mean you can't do it again. It can be, be much better second time, Steve. Finally, from you and Fraser. Dear Set Piece Menu, firstly, thank you once again for your quite magnificent podding. Oh. Secondly, I wanted to share some musings in response to your discussion of Premier League exceptionalism. My initial reaction was... Isn't Premier League exceptionalism simply an extension of English exceptionalism? Football is, after all, forever coming home, despite quite limited evidence to suggest that it actually wants to. It seems quite content on holiday in the Mediterranean currently. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout the coverage of the recent European Championship, we were subjected to endless obsession over every detail of the England squad at the expense of other national teams. Analysis and consideration of the other home nations, for example, felt token and patronising. It was a shame that Italy and Spain had to play out a thrilling semi-final as it got in the way of further discussion of Luke Shaw's slippers. If you see yourself as the centre of the universe, why wouldn't that apply to football and to the Premier League? I write this as I watch the Super Cup final between Chelsea and Villarreal. Pre-match adverts for the Premier League season hyped up the passion in the greatest league in the world... During the match, the commentary team ridiculed Unai Emery for the passion that he showed for the game and his team. Is only the Premier League allowed to have passion? Do they just like English passion, whilst foreign passion is just a bit silly? Exceptionalism leaves no room for contrition or humility. So how can you learn? Combine that with near limitless resources. You don't need to be exceptional. You can just throw money at the problem. Manchester United's answer to last season's disappointment of losing to Villarreal in the Europa League final, well, they splash out on Varane and Sancho. Or look at Arsenal. They spent £30 million on a centre-half who hasn't made appearance for them in three years have now bought a 50 million pound defender to play in his position they do this despite appointing an apparently exceptional coach keep up the great chat best wishes ewan that's ewan fraser who will doubtless now turn off realizing we're talking about the premier league again today a lot of what ewan says there about sort of premier league slash english exceptionalism is of course quite right i i do think and, and i remember this from during the euro this this bashing of the broadcasters for the amount of time that they spent talking about England, even when England weren't playing, that is a consequence, or at least the, the belief, that the criticism of the broadcasters in those circumstances is a consequence of the amount of football that we are exposed to now in terms of Sky, BT, from the subscription services, that we are used to the focus very much on the game in hand. Major tournament football being shown on terrestrial television is different in terms of the coverage because it is different in terms of the audience. It's not 1.5 million people watching a Super Sunday game on Sky. You're talking about numbers in the high teens into the early 20s of millions of people. And it, to, to use the example of Italy, Spain, yes, there are will be people watching who are absolutely fascinated by the Italy-Spain game in hand. But a large percentage of them will be much more of the ilk of casual football watchers who will be more fascinated with the latest news from the England camp. 
It is just a consequence of the different audience that you get as a broadcaster for a major competition on terrestrial television than you do for Premier League games shown live on Sky and BT. Uh, This might be entirely wrong and very bad of me, but his name's Ewan Fraser. So Ewan, if you are indeed as Scottish as your two names suggest you are, perhaps that is one of the reasons behind um, a distaste for an obsession with England on a national broadcaster, which includes Scotland. Correspondence of any kind to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Our subject today begins with a beautifully worked in launch for the mighty SPM PLPL, because when talking about the Premier League's top six, it begs the question, who is the top six well you get to decide that not in any sporting sense of course just in a mildly trivial way in our set piece menu premier league predictions league this is the game that lots of people albeit passingly attempt to copy but simply just don't have the brand recognition status of spm plpl each year we ask you to predict the final positions of the 20 premier league teams sometimes chinch is good at it and that's about it really Mm. the points will be awarded in the same way as last year 20 for spot on down to one for being as far away as possible then some bonus points for getting the top four right and the bottom three right as well although if you think manchester city are going to finish bottom then that might suggest you haven't done the significant amount of homework needed to prepare for a completely inconsequential competition that this is the prize is nothing of value uh, beyond which we cannot guarantee anything although maybe it might include one of the entirely new and exciting SPM merchandise offerings available to you all right now please don't wait to see if you win the SPM PLPL at tpublic.com it also once again brings the previous two winners of the competition to the top of my mind two winners we have so far failed to reward adequately indeed at all a demoralizing precedent for all those competing this year so how do you enter this most venerable of meaningless things head to tinyurl.com forward slash setpiece menu to enter your team and make your predictions. That is tinyurl.com forward slash setpiece menu to enter your team and make your predictions where you think the 20 Premier League teams will finish this season. You have until Friday the 3rd of September, the end of Friday the 3rd of September. Head to tinyurl.com forward slash setpiece menu. It goes without saying, of course, that total, totally amateurish to make those predictions before the transfer window has shut. So do it between the 1st and the 3rd of September is Roy's advice. You could, maybe, you could maybe make a case for doing it 31st of August if you're relatively confident there are no big deals coming through. But I, I, I despair when I see journalists and pundits, etc., doing season predictions now. When you think, well, your season prediction for Tottenham might, might, might change a little bit if they sell their best player, surely. So why bother? It's ridiculous. So Phil McNulty, Phil McNulty has done the how the whole league table will look come the end of the season. Are you calling him a fool? I'm calling Phil a... I mean, that that is an act of folly beyond imagination. Do fools commit acts of folly? I've got to admit, I was quite interested to see the kind of predict the whole league table appear on the BBC website, given... Given certain past history that they have with certain podcasts, I don't know. Just you know, taking ideas from certain podcasts. Not sure how to say. It is hard to say. We. I'm not making um, any any allegations. We will spend at least until the end of the 31st of August trying to figure that one out. Mm. Tinyurl.com forward slash setpiece menu. And a reminder: the best man, Billy, is the man who completely curates, looks after, attempts to fix all the problems that arise uh, with the SPM PLPL. There is a little button to push which buys him a coffee if you enter, please, because he has to pay a small amount of subscription fees to be able to host this. So if you could, please, buy him a coffee. We would be grateful because otherwise we'll have to reimburse him. So why does this dovetail with our conversation today? For so long, there was a Premier League top four. It was an obsession of Arsene Wenger. Then there was a top six. And tellingly, when the European Super League boomed and busted early this year, the teams involved, the traditional top six were called the 
Big Six, because it was demonstrably clear that they weren't, at that time at least, the top six anymore. So are we going to have to change the way we talk about the upper echelons of the Premier League or simply keep the top six but take out Arsenal and add Leicester? And what does the relative fluidity tell us about the Premier League? And more specifically, and here we reach the end of a very long road, the season in particular. So in keeping with our summer series, today's Premier League preview-ish is provisionally entitled Top Six? Well, the thing is that I don't think they were ever called the top six. I think they have always been the big six. Big six, yeah. And I think there is, within that, there is is a sort of demonstrable manifest difference between the sort of glories of Italian culture and the and the, the sort of banal, quotidian, like, utilitarianness of Britishness. So obviously in Italy, in the, in the glory years, they had the Sette Sorelle, the Seven Sisters, which was a much more evocative way of, of expressing exactly the same sentiment. Why did we not have the Six Sisters? Or previously, the four friends. That would have been really nice. <laughs> sure, but surely, getting into the top six is not breaking into the big six, is it? No, they are. They are totally separate. They're totally different things. And we should. We should. The other thing that's really important and a slightly more serious point that we should remember for context is that when the Premier League broke away in 1992, there was also a big six. I think they actually had a specific name. I can't remember what they were called, but there were six teams who were the established grandees of English football who led the breakaway. And it, the, the, there's this sort of idea that, I don't know, in the, in the mid-2000s, when, the, when the, the top four, the bid four, are established, that that is the first time in English history that there's ever been that, that sense of, a, of an elite amongst the power base, an elite even, even among the elite. And it's not true, because in, in, in the late 80s, early 90s, it was Manchester United, Liverpool, Everton, Villa, Arsenal and Spurs were the, were the, the bid six who led the Premier League re- revolution. There has always been... With the exception maybe of the the mid-90s, before the, the rise of Arsenal, when it was just the bid one, and then everybody else below Manchester United. And even when there was United and Arsenal, you had the bid two, and, and that was it. And then everybody else was fighting for third. There have always been little groups of power bases in the last 30, 35 years within English football. It's never This isn't a new thing that there is an established elite among that elite. When, when we were all getting, let's say all, not chinch, when the rest of us, the younger members of the quartet, were getting into football in the mid-80s, the big four were Liverpool, Everton, Manchester United, and I want to say Arsenal. It feels on like the, that. On the playground, those were the, those were the clubs that were revered by us at the ages of sort of seven and eight, mid-80s, when we were, when we were getting I don't know, it feels football. like Spurs are in that. Yeah, I, there, was, there was certainly four. I mean, you can, maybe Arsenal and Spurs are interchangeable in, in terms of, which one of them at at a certain time was in that group, and and, and the, the team that everybody supported was defined as much by who won the FA Cup final as who won the first division championship. That was very often Coventry City. You could you could tell which year someone was in at school mm. by which shirt a majority of the kids were wearing. I, I just find it amazing that children aged seven or eight were in the playground revering. The we top were. sides. That is. That's. What school did you go to? Well, because that's, we, that's a we, big word for young children. We mm. had match and who do you revere? Magazine, <laughs> and they told us who to revere. So Tarquin, who do you revere? Well, I, re- <laughs> I really revere the Gunners. Very good school you went to, Stephen. Wasn't uh, it? I didn't I realize like... when when talking about the 1980s, I had to speak in the the language that I used myself at that time. Jim. Yeah, it, it helps. Allowed, language is allowed to develop over time. With with <laughs> with your own growth as a human. The, <laughs> 
The um, so Liverpool United and Arsenal. This is not like a very popular point, but there there is a very clear discrepancy between those three teams and everybody else in English football history. We 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 kind of think that that Spurs and City and Everton and Villa and Leeds are giants, and that they are huge clubs, but they're a long, long way behind those three in particular in terms of trophies won history, kind of attendances, seasons in the lead, all that stuff. That By pretty much every metric, there, is, there are those three, Liverpool and Man United are top, Arsenal are third, and then Gap. It's an excellent point, Rory, made in a glorious technicolour of your fantastic BBC-provided microphone. However, that has now failed. So here you are again <laughs> to continue that point. On, uh, with your iPhone earphones. On, on scratchy iPhone headphones. Yeah, I think that we treat English football as, as though it's completely different to, to all the European leagues and we act as though there is this sort of vast welter of huge clubs who sort of, sort of interchange, interchange positions of power. And to an extent that is true, but there are three clubs that are a lot bigger than everybody else and three clubs that have always been central to the kind of shifting power bases of English football, and they are Liverpool, Manchester United and Arsenal. And you tend to find that any iteration of the big four, the big six, whatever it might be, includes those three teams. And, and, the, and the big four, or the top four, as was coined, as you said, in the mid-2000s, tended to include Liverpool in that, along with Manchester United, Chelsea and Arsenal. Mm. And if you think about those four, there was a period when Liverpool weren't really competing in the top four. It wasn't necessarily consistently so, because there were moments when they were. But if you then take the big six now, including, to a certain degree, uh, Spurs, but particularly Arsenal, two eighth-place finishes, we are now having to recalibrate our are kind of thoughts about how that works. Because if you think about Liverpool being out of the top four on the odd occasion, albeit more than once, Arsenal are now potentially being consistently outside of the top six. So when do we recalibrate to such an extent that they're not a member of the big six? Well, this is the thing, though, that because because of the natures of the clubs and the number of fans they have, the histories they have, that when Liverpool were out of the Champions League, I think for almost as long as Arsenal have been now, four or five years, similar... No one said, well, we're now, we've now got a bid five because City and Spurs are clearly better than Liverpool as they were at the time. Liverpool had to be included. And it's the same with Arsenal because it's not just referring to league position or current success. It, it has to do with a, diff- with a set of different factors that qualify Arsenal to be part of the bid six, even when they are not particularly close to being entering into the top six. So what's harder to get into the top four, big four, big six or... To, to relinquish your place from it? I, th- I, I don't know if there's been any... Huh, that's interesting because so the, the top four of the, the mid-2000s are all in the bid six, but the, the bid six of the, early ni- of the early 1990s, two of them have fallen away. How, so for how, yeah, I suppose directly on Arsenal, how, how bad would they need to be for how long? before we got that recalibration that, that Hugh is talking about. It, it, does, it, does it come a point then when crowds start to dwindle, match day revenue falls, their, their online presence diminishes because fans can no longer galvanise themselves even, even to get behind a team that is struggling but clearly has greatness hidden away somewhere? I don't know. I, th- I suspect that the, the nature of it's all changed, that, and this is, this is purely a theory, that it's changed so much that, like, that I suppose if Arsenal finished bottom half of the table for seven, eight, nine years, and it became the, I, th- I suppose it's when it comes, it when it becomes obvious that you are not going to challenge. 
So although we know Arsenal aren't going to win the lead this year, it, it's not entirely beyond the realms of possibility that they might muster some sort of challenge to get into a Champions League space, spot. I don't think they will. But if if we got to March and Arsenal were fifth, you wouldn't exactly, you know, there wouldn't be sort of people f- flocking from all over the world to witness this miracle. Do you know, it wouldn't be Leicester. But is, is it going to be Leicester for Arsenal if things continue for both those clubs in the way they seem to be going? Well, I think that's the more interesting question. Can Are things now so calcified that, that none of those teams can shift? So mm. can Leicester do, do, Leicester do lots and lots of things right, but can they do enough things right for long enough that they are considered either part of a big seven, the Seven Sisters, or... <laughs> Very um, romantic. Or that they replace the weakest link in the big six. It doesn't have to be six. It could be seven. It doesn't really work about... It doesn't really work with seven, but it could do. But, um, but here's the point. I think that you, you were trying to say that when the big four became the big six, it was just simply that instead of replacing an out-of-form big four team, they just extended in, yeah. it. You just added yeah. two. So it will end up being the big eight or the big ten, if there's a, there's a sense that none of those teams are That's within That's getting silly, though. Group. You can't have a big ten, can big you? Ten. That's just... I, think, I think they have a big ten in... in no, as I say, oh, it's a, football, but, it's a big league. It's a big league. But there, but there is, there is, is there not, as Steve was alluding to, an impossible situation that any of those big clubs are replaced, they might become less important, but if there is a team that is added, they won't be replaced. They will not drop out of it. It will just be expanded to allow those egos, those money generators, whatever, however cynical you want to be, to still have a place at that table because there is a sense, and it is self-generating, I would imagine, that they would never be outside of that group because of the size they feel they have, the contribution they feel they make to football based on the now or based on the much larger context of football history. One theory I've got in terms of how the status shifts is how you operate in the transfer market. It felt like that spell when Liverpool were consistently out of the Champions League. They were struggling to upgrade what they had when they signed players. They were struggling to attack they were struggling to attract the sort of players that they should have been. And it felt like they were they were stuck in a cycle of, of mistakes being made in, in the transfer market. They were either buying the wrong players or players that spending money on players that didn't improve what they already had. And it, it was it was They a, were having a Hinchcliffe basically. They were having they? a Hinchcliffe. Yeah. They just kept yeah. signing Andy Hinchcliffe yeah. over yeah. and over again. Over again. And why they just couldn't why? get out of that vicious cycle. Mm. And and I wonder whether that's what, what might define Arsenal now over the course of the next few seasons if they're not getting into the Champions League or even the Europa League on a regular basis they are going to be shopping in a a different area in terms of the players that they are able to attract the players that they are able to recruit and holding on to to their top talent and and once you slip out of those higher echelons I guess that's what makes it so difficult to get back in because you've ultimately got to produce or develop the players to help you do it because signing them becomes harder and harder if if you don't if you don't have success on the pitch and your league placing say for Arsenal don't improve are they financially more powerful will they always be more powerful than Leicester and does that play a part in how fans see the size of football clubs it depends that's a tricky one it depends a little bit on like model doesn't it it depends a little bit on whether Arsenal probably do have access to more money than Leicester but and does that st- play a part in people's thinking about the site, the size? Is it history? Is it current success? Or is financial power part yeah, of their thinking? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the the thing that maybe marks that will will mark the difference between the, the Arsenal case and the Liverpool case. Liverpool's the only time we've ever seen 
in the last 20 years, a member of that top four threatened to fall away. And they probably, you can make a case without going in, into the weeds of the, the timeline, that they probably rescued it just in time to justify their status within it. So from 2009 to 2013, they finished mid-table, they're not challenging for the Champions League, they're signing Paul Trinchesky and Christian Poulsen, they're not very good. If they'd had another couple of years of that, then you could probably make the case that they would have fallen out and it would have become a, a big five with Liverpool as this kind of fallen giant, not quite Leeds, not quite Wolves, but somewhere along those lines. Because Liverpool in 2013-14 then almost win the league and suddenly have Luis Suarez and are in the Champions League again, albeit briefly and without any great, sort of without exactly lighting it up, you can then say, all right, Liverpool are still something approaching a big team in English football in, in terms of being competing for, for domestic honours. They made I think they made a couple of cup finals in that time as well. So the, the test with Arsenal will be, it's what, five years now they're out of the Champions League? If that continues for another two or three, that will affect the, the type of player they can sign far more than it already has. Because you, if you're Arsenal, you probably can go to Ben White and say, or whoever, and say, we want you to help us get in, back into the Champions League. If you're pushing sort of 10 years out of the Champions League, then players won't, you know, your 25-year-old, not even that, 23-year-old player won't really have any memory of you as a Champions League club, and that's a real problem. There are financial problems because you have you do have to cut your cloth after a while. I'm slightly surprised at how much money Arsenal spent this summer. I th I, that that strikes me as being a uncharacteristic of the Cronky regime, and b not particularly in keeping with where they are as a club. I, but at the same time, I don't think they could ever fall out of the big six or whatever it would become, just because they they have so many fans, they are such a draw, they are such a big name, they are so internationally popular. Their merchandise is, is is worth X, their sort of relevance is X, their media profile is X. I suspect that even if Arsenal finished 9th, 10th, 11th regularly, even if the quality of their squad dipped way below where it is now, and I think I had this conversation the other day with somebody, whether this Arsenal team are worse than the Kenny Dalglish Liverpool team that didn't get into the Champions League. And to be perfectly honest, if you go through the names in that Liverpool team, it was infinitely better than this Arsenal team. The... I, even with all of that, even if all that holds, I don't think, I think that the, the sort of financial and structural benefits to having been Arsenal over the last 20 years are such that they would still be in any big combination of, of teams for the, for the foreseeable future. Fun, I, don't, I think they're all too big to fail now to an extent. Mm. I, th I think the financial and structural is very interesting because if you talk to uh, what, what Chinch was saying about size, if you talk about size, literal and figurative, if you're spending £50 million on a 23-year-old central defender, you are giving the impression of mm -hmm. size and power and wealth. Whether it's the right decision or not, you are able to attract a player who you feel is worth £50 million. And structural size, literal size, when you have a big stadium, that allows you to feel when you are not in a top six, like a top six club. So, for example, Leicester have announced that they're going to expand the king power. That seems to be, in a, in a very football manager way, but a necessary way for them, a statement of saying, right, we, we need to be bigger. We need to, if we're going to be a big six club or in the top six regularly, that needs to be one of the steps that they need to take. Manchester City did it. 
Spurs did it, built a new stadium. Liverpool expanded their stadium a while back. Manchester United, who obviously already had one of the biggest ones, expanded even further. So there is a legend. And whether it's just the artifice of having a big stadium, whether that actually has any tangible effect on So is that what Everton, yeah. Everton are looking to do the same, do you feel? Exactly. So if Everton yeah. want to be part of that conversation, it feels like it's a necessary step because it yeah. is a structural thing. Yes, tangible, but there's an intangible element of it. To, if you feel big, literally, because mm. you've got a big stadium, that helps create that artifice artifice around you of size as well. So is the flip side of that argument, and this is a separate strand of thought, that Newcastle and Sunderland, both of whom have massive stadiums for teams of their level, which is meant there's no disrespect to either of them, does that then increase the pressure on them because the perception is that teams in, in stadiums that big should be fighting for more than either 14th in the Premier League or promotion from League One? There's there's geographical aspects to this as well, though, and that's part of what keeps Arsenal, as as Rory was just just describing, as a big big six club. However much they relatively struggle for a few seasons, because they are a North London club with a big stadium and with the history that goes with that, and and that will continue to help them by being a capital club, attract players that they might not otherwise be able to do. And I often think West Ham are a good example. Of, of a club that benefits from being a capital club, again, with, with no disrespect. Back to the playground in the 1980s. Who do you revere? Well, they're capital. <laughs> if you... If you, if you they're a capital club. They really are. Really a capital club. <laughs> they're East Capital. If you look at their, their history, their record, what they've achieved, is enhanced by the fact that they're a London club. A Midlands club or a, a club on the south coast or even in the northeast that had the same kind of trophy success that West Ham had would probably mean they weren't taken as seriously as West Ham are you know have always had huge following within the media uh, people who've grown up in that part of London and that's the same is true of, of clubs like Crystal Palace who've grown up in that part of London and have gone on to work in the media and, and that that gives them an, an elevation as well and that's something that Newcastle and Sunderland are constantly battling against, where they are geographically, because Manchester, Birmingham, London, I guess those are the places where the top players want to be. What about a team like Nottingham Forest, who are like West Ham in that it's been a while since their success? They are revered, certainly in the playgrounds of the 1980s, as a result of the proximity to the late 1970s when they were very, very successful. So... But but Forest, do they not retain that same sense that West Ham do? I appreciate it's because they're not currently in the Premier League. Were West Ham and Nottingham Forest to be switched, would Nottingham Forest be going through that same process? Were Nottingham Forest to be sixth place team in the Premier League last season, would we would be consider them in the same kind of echelons as West Ham? The thing with Forest is that's dangerous is it's really generational. That to all of us, Forest are this massive sleeping giant. But they're not really. They're, they are, and I'd say this as someone who, who fervently believes that you know it would be much better if if Forest were back in the Premier League and that Nottingham deserves a big club and blah blah blah. But it's it, it's a twerk of the time in which we grew up that that to us Forest are this huge name that that should be kind of up there with Liverpool and Manchester United and Arsenal competing for trophies. But there's nothing in history to suggest that that's the case. I think if you ask people both older and younger than us. The, old, the older ones will remember what Forrest became, but they, they will remember what Forrest became within the context of what Forrest were. And I reckon if you're under 25, 30, 
maybe even 35. You, you probably have literally no conception whatsoever of, of Nottingham Forest as being a, a big club other than the stuff you have been told. You won't remember it in any real, in any real way. And it, you need to experience it yourself, don't you? And that, 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 I think, is the, is the real test of bigness, which is a weird thing that we've discussed before. But I don't think any generation would have grown up in the last 70 years, post-World War II, without being aware that Manchester United, Liverpool and Arsenal are big clubs that it's very, very hard. You see it on Twitter occasionally, people sort of having these stupid debates about, you know, Arsenal have finished eighth twice in a year, so they're not a big club anymore. And it's complete bollocks. It's it's child, it's child, it's the sort of thing that doesn't wouldn't even belong on Steve's prep stool playground. That the it just would not happen there, would it? No, it would no. be it would be dismissed as hot as utter hogwash. I think they'd say it's absolutely crass. It's bald, <laughs> it's absolute balder dash. It really absolutely. Is. Poppycock, I tell you. <laughs> Poppycock. <laughs> The, the irony of this being that I'm the only one of the four of us who had a working class education. Oh, <laughs> that feels anyway. like the kind of to and fro that you'd have on Twitter <laughs> about Arsenal finishing eight twice. But they, they are they are the big they are the big clubs. They are unchanged, unyieldingly, unyieldingly the big clubs. And I guess again, it's a different strand of thought. But there, there will be some sort of time limit on how long you have to be within that conversation to be considered a big club. So if Chelsea say fell away now massively. In 30, 40 years' time, would that would Chelsea be thought? Would would they be thought of as something akin to Forest, the team that had a golden age and then then dropped off, or would they still be discussed as Arsenal are now, as kind of even if they're not winning stuff, are they necessarily kind of in some existential way a big club? And I suspect the answer is the former rather than the latter. Same for City. The, the the odd one is Spurs, who've always been central to this sort of thing and who are who are act like a big club and comport themselves like a big club and consider themselves part of that conversation, that they belong at the table of the, the absolute elite of English football, but don't really have anything other than now the size of the stadium to back it up. It's really odd that Spurs are are always included in these groups. But they are successful just regularly enough to infect a generation. So, in, you know, 60, way back to the 60s, in the 80s, the Glenn Hoddle era, when Steve, you were saying about getting to the cup finals, Spurs would often get to cup finals throughout the 80s, early 90s as well, when, of course, they beat Nottingham Forest and uh, Forest's last kind of the end of their great period. Um, so that, that helps a team like Spurs. But I, the last example of a, of a club that kind of flits in and out of these examples is Everton, because you brought yeah. up the fact that they're moving stadia. When you, when you went to Everton, and this is... Not to suggest in any way that you were some sort of catalyst to Everton being <laughs> a big club. Listen, I play my part, but there were many others who dragged them down as well. But when you joined, you joined in 1990, didn't you? So 1990, yes. yeah. 1990, it was a team that were, as Rory was illustrating, pivotal to the 1992 breakaway because they were one of the big six. Did yeah. you get a sense of that? What was the tangible element of that to you? It didn't sit... You talk about size of clubs and sizes of stadiums and stuff. Obviously, I played at Goodison Park a couple of times, and it's quite a, again, it is quite a, a small traditional ground. So I didn't get a sense of Everton as a club being bigger than Man City that I left, but as a team, as a successful team, I felt I was joined. That's the that's the thing that I saw with the players, Kevin Ratcliffe, Kevin Sheedy, Neville Southall, all those really famous decorated players that had won leagues and won European competitions. That's the team I felt I was joining and the challenge that I had. I didn't feel that moving from Man City to Everton felt that the clubs didn't seem to come into my thinking. It was more the quality of the individuals, the players, the teams. And that that was the challenge for me. So, but that surely that's what Everton, 
with this move to a new yes they have the the money again is are they trying to build this perception of of what they are i presume that is a, a big part of it because on the pitch with the players that they're, they're signing the money that they probably want to spend they're struggling to get the players that could probably elevate them in the league table to challenge to the top six but bringing rafa benitez in moving to a big stadium. Are they trying to build that perception again but it's, but it's easier of themselves for them. as a big club? Yes, but it's easier for them because they have a starting point which is higher than other teams. Yes, absolutely. Yes. We were just talking about that period. So, so how does then this reflect on the Premier League this season? Are we now in this state of flux to such an extent that those entering in the SPM PLPL will have no idea what happens outside, say, the top three or four? Because Leicester and West Ham did it last year. Are we expecting Leicester and West Ham to be part of it again this year? And as you said, Rory, calcifying an element of that top six being the top six. Or are we now, yes, it, the, the fluidity of the Premier League because of its ultra competitiveness actually means that everything outside of maybe Manchester City, Chelsea, Liverpool, Manchester United, you could tell I don't have a clue, uh, is going to be much of a muchness or anybody's guess. The fact that Arsenal and Spurs have fallen away is is interesting. Although obviously Spurs win their opening game and maybe they're being written off a little bit too soon, but it does feel as though there is there is a four mm-hmm. who are the t- who who are likely to be the top four, and that and... feels as nailed on as yes. it has done for a while. Yeah, that, but, but that... in what but in which order is interesting? But that well, it, but that, it, that, that matters. Too it doesn't much. matter. Okay. It it, do, it does matter in the long run because that's how they decide who wins the trophies. But <laughs> it, it it won't. Not Tottenham Wenger. On, in the context of this conversation, in the context does it, of this does conversation, it matter to the, does it matter to the clubs being part of this group, or yes. do they, does it not even enter their thinking? It does well, matter the, to them. But the thing is that, that, that there is then another. There's like an, there's an administrative top six as well, bid six as well, mm-hmm. that which is unchanging. That that will not shift wherever anyone finishes in the lead. That those six see themselves now with City, well, five of them, and then City as a kind of extra uneasy partner. That they see themselves as being a a a group within the Premier League, that yeah. their interests are broadly aligned and that the, the interests of the other 14 or most of the other 14 run contrary to their interests. And so in that sense, there is a big six that will hold regardless. We saw that with the, the voting rights recently, wasn't it? They tried yeah. to, again, that bit of a land grab. Was that, again, well, down to how they see themselves within the league? Well, so the, the, the example that they would give you is that when there was the debate about five substitutes at the start of last season, that they, and I think a couple of others, all made the point that this is this they can i think their argument was this does give, give us an advantage because we have bigger squads but also it is for player welfare and it'd be the same for everybody we're not saying we get to make five subs and you only get to make three it's just a case that this is an unusual season we need to know we need to do five subs every other league in europe's done it the champion league's done it we should do it and the other 14 voted against it despite the fact that to a fairly obvious extent it was also in their interests and the big six felt that that was done purely out of spite it was done. They, they were willing to override their own interests. I'm probably giving away the fact that I agree with them. Um, they were willing to override their, their own interests purely to get at the bid six, and that that was that was the kind of, that's the kind of example that to them, where everything manifests, that you have six teams who basically work together and have similar needs and similar requirements and similar expectations and demands, and then you have 14 teams who don't really who above above all don't want them to succeed. I sort of see what you're saying about that, but it felt felt to me as that they just simply had less to gain from, yeah. so, from that going through. So so why give the big six something that benefited them so much more than it did the rest? Yeah, and there's an argument there. It's not so much a spiteful thing as saying, well, we let Manchester City make five subs. They're going to steamroll us 
even more mm-hmm. than, than they were, were going to anyway. So, so why why give them that additional little benefit, even if there is something small well, to gain for us the, as well? The flip, yeah, that, that that's a valid case, and that may well be how they saw it. The flip side, of course, is that they get to keep their players fitter for longer. But that that's a separate debate. I think that administrative bid sits thing is now, that's a group that will last quite a long time. In terms of the league itself... It, it feels the top four feels as settled as it has done probably since the mid 2000s when you kind of knew at the start of the season who's going to finish in the top four and what matters to the clubs there is, is not so, they want to finish first I don't think they're that bothered if they if you offered them second third or fourth I think they wouldn't be that fussed about which order it is as long as they're in the top four that's all they care about but what has changed is that not only have you got Arsenal and Spurs regressing a little bit you also have like a tranche of clubs Leicester, Villa, Leeds, Everton, maybe West Ham who feel like they're getting closer to Arsenal and Spurs mm-hmm. than they have than they would have been three, four, five years ago, and that's where the the, the dynamism comes in. And, and that's probably the most damning way of analysing Arsenal's situation. Not that they've relinquished their place within the Big Four that five, six years ago looked like it was pretty much locked in, but that they've regressed to the point where the likes of Leicester, West Ham, Aston Villa feel like they can not only just reel them in but potentially overtake them move above them not just briefly but for a longer term spell and and that's i suppose it's a it's a lesson of caution even for very big clubs that the moment will come where you may drop away and you need to make sure that those who who could potentially take advantage don't feel as though that becomes a probability I suppose you can be critical of Arsenal, but surely you have to congratulate the other sides for doing a lot right over the last five or six years to put themselves in a position where they could possibly... But are are they actually thinking Leicester, West Ham? Are they thinking about breaking into that big six, top six? Or is it just about taking it season? But they're they're not surely targeting, you know, like a lion. They're not targeting the, you know, the aged, injured zebra of Arsenal and looking to take it down. But that's they are, they've, they've just made their way in their own way. And now they're in a position maybe where people are thinking like this. Rory, who has now disappeared, you will notice that there's much less background noise. Uh, and also you will notice that uh, much of the points will be very, very unfounded and less intellectual. <laughs> and but happy. delivered via quality microphones. Yes, so, quality yeah. microphones. Ebb and he flow. Does, doesn't manage to break the one he got for free. Sadly, you can hear the we're coming out with <laughs> but uh, so so yes Rory, if you had this point in the podcast as Rory, Rory's disappearing time well done you win a prize just like the SPM PLPL which is nothing but but he he made the point that you you separate off the weak of the prey and then you you kind of focus in on them and try and take them down it is a David Attenborough narrated uh, wildlife documentary it's the, it's the same yeah, that's principle. not been Leicester's plan to pick off Arsenal Leicester's plan has been Leicester's plan hasn't it and if that is what happens which from what we've been talking about, it doesn't seem likely, does it, with the site for a certain period of time anyway, that doesn't seem likely that Arsenal will be replaced. Yeah, Leicester didn't spot five years ago that Arsenal were carrying a limp and and <laughs> gradually ending up towards the back of the herd and that, you know, maybe given a bit of patience, they'd be able to pounce. <laughs> but but it's, about, it's about having a strategy that enables you to lie in the long grass and be ruthless yeah. if the opportunity comes along. And that's because, what they deserve great credit for. Because Leicester won the league in 2016 because they took advantage of all the teams who might have taken advantage of the 
contenders not competing. So actually, Arsenal was a, was an example given back in 2016 as failing to take that opportunity. Spurs, to a certain extent, uh, as well. So Leicester, from that moment, which was a launchpad for these five years that have followed, where they have been in the long grass stalking the prey because they have given themselves a foundation of an anomalous moment to be able to have a staging post and now go, right, we're going to attack this top six. Financially, it was they were able to do so. The fact that they gained such notoriety and all those things that Rory was listing about, you know, marketing presence, um, media presence, fans globally, all those things built because of 2016 that allows them now to attack that top six. But Chinch, you've already seen West Ham play this season. Yeah. West Ham were the anomalous team last season to a certain degree. They didn't win the league, but they did finish sixth. So are they now in a position where they're able to do the same thing as Leicester from an albeit slightly lower position in terms of position in the table last year and everything that came with that, but from a slightly higher position in terms of notoriety that Steve was describing yeah, earlier pos- and geography as well? Yeah, pos- uh, geography will certainly help. And we've mentioned that before, but they, they probably need three or four more players and they need to keep their best players as well. So it's a really it'd be very interesting to see what happens with West Ham. Everton, I'm looking at Everton. Do they maybe like Leicester sense that there's maybe a shifting of power here? Is this why, again, Rafa, Rafa coming in makes perfect sense anyway from a footballing point of view, maybe not from an Everton-Liverpool point of view, the new stadium. Are they trying to, again, position themselves to attract better players with a, a better calibre of head coach to maybe be the team that in three or four years' time are the ones challenging rather than necessarily West Ham or, or, or Villa or, or Leeds or anyone else? Could it be Everton? Is this why, again, they're doing all this positioning with their stadium and maybe Benitez as well? And that will maybe encourage better players. And then they move forward very quickly and they can maybe pounce. The, the only problem for Everton is that they've been in that long grass for such a period of time that they're becoming incredibly easy to spot. They, they have been... They, the grass has grown something. over them. That's the problem, yeah. isn't it? Yes, yes. We're back in the world of very tortured metaphors. Uh, we, we have a bit of a habit of doing this. But, but all those ones that you mentioned do have that very high floor of historical relevance, notoriety throughout the generation, so that it's not just old people, like the Forest uh, example that was given earlier. Everton, Leeds, Villa, all of those teams have a relevance to at least our generation and everything below. Sorry, everything above, if you think about it, age-wise. So there, it is easier for them. It took Leicester to have such an incredible season and win the league against all the odds for them to even begin that process, from which they have very sensibly been in that long grass stalking whoever might be having a limp. And, and the big clubs have been taking notes. <laughs> You, I try and save you from yourself. I'm just imagining Mikel Arteta just dragging one of his feet behind him. <laughs> the big clubs have been taking note because it was it's interesting speaking to, to those from the likes of Liverpool and Manchester City in the week before the season. And they did mention Leicester and they did mention West Ham. They were talking about the progress they'd made. When, when you ask the question about who do you see as your your primary challengers this season, they weren't just fixated mm. on the fact that it's Chelsea, Manchester City, Manchester United and Liverpool, the top four, as we would analyse it. They were looking beyond that. They did believe that, that Tottenham were still going to be capable of challenging. They did make the point that you know West Ham had a great season last season and have, as far as they're concerned, made progress during the summer. That, that Leicester will be there, even with Europa League football to consider, they will be there or thereabouts again. So we, even though we, from a 
a detached position are saying right the top fours the, the big four whatever that that's that that's that is is how things line up behind those four is that they don't quite see it that way and I, and I don't think that's that's just them trying to pull the wool over our eyes so so to conclude um and it's it's not often we conclude in any satisfactory way are we going to potentially, because of the infiltration of the big six, the top six, whichever vernacular you care to choose, do we now have Leicester and West Ham, meaning that it's a top four again? We're back to the mid-2000s and we've got a top four. We've got a big four. Even though the Arsenal and Spurs will have a financial relevance and they will obviously always be considered com- competition or competitors for a top six place that genuinely because Leicester and West Ham are as legitimate on in a sporting sense competitors for one of those top six berths that actually it's now we're back to a top four again. Yeah, I think you have to say surely the, the big four is the top four, but the, the top six is what's changing, isn't it? In terms of the league table and teams that are challenging for that. The big six will probably stay. But the interesting thing is the, the top six, and you've got to think of West Ham and, and Everton possibly in time and, and Leicester. And that's the really interesting thing. And it's, I just think it's great, again, that we, you have this kind of establishment and then there is, in terms of financial power and history and everything else, we can understand that, the big six. But it's really good that in modern football, teams can still have a philosophy that works well and enables them to to get to the, not the very top of the tree, but in essence, they are. Leicester, in essence, are winning the league if they finish in the in fifth place. You'd have to say that really with the teams, the four teams that are above them. So I think it's really healthy that we're still able that, you know, the, the four to the rest of the, the Premier League, the 14 other sides in it, have the possibility is still there to make up ground. Any one of those four teams that we assume fit will finish in the Champions League places, if they don't, they've not only had a catastrophic season, but somebody, the team that finishes ahead of them, has played above themselves mm-hmm for a large majority of the 38 games. I think it's, it's the contrast is so stark that it needs both of those things to happen simultaneously. Yeah. And it, it, there, there will be those who will think that too much of this is about Arsenal failing. And I apologise to those people who might have drawn those conclusions. However, it is interesting that when the top four became a big six or a top four became a top six, it's because Arsenal dropped out of the top four and were in the top six. Yeah. And now we're having the same discussion about the top six because Arsenal have dropped out of that top six. So uh, they are absolutely pivotal in everything. And it is mainly because of their relative failure. So I apologize again <laughs> that you might well, might well conclude that we obviously have not. It is time for Nevermind Jack and Ori. What a soccer story. This is an Andy tells the tale from his playing or broadcasting days with all adult behavior and libel worthy details removed. So fans are finally back at games. Hooray. Really? Is that the case? Is that is that the is that the full story? Ninety nine point nine percent yes, zero point one percent no, and I will tell you for why. Because one fan frightened Chinch, and this is the it's a scary story. It really is. Uh, first game of the season, my first match of the season, Sheffield United against Birmingham, the big one. And this is post-match, so the, the game has been played, the fans have all gone home, Birmingham have put on a great performance and they've, they've beaten Sheffield United 1-0 at, at Bramall Lane. So we're, we're all basically cooling down after a red-hot championship encounter. So myself and Daniel Mann and Jonathan Oates, who's the pitch side reporter for Sky, Danny Mann, the, the commentator, we're all kind of there, pitch side. And to our right, only maybe 10 yards away, there is a, a youngish Sheffield United fan who clearly has had a, a very good time 
not watching the match, but presumably down the pub. He, how can I phrase this? He is absolutely larruped. And he's, he's not, he's, he's engaging with two stewards. For some reason, he's, he constantly keeps shouting, Billy, Billy. And we're presuming that he means Billy Sharp, but he's actually shouting towards the groundsmen who are forking the pitch. So I'm getting the sense that maybe he's not fully aware of his surroundings, but the stewards are kind of handling it. And we're thinking that I felt a bit sorry. It's, it's again, he's had a great time, but again, he doesn't really know what, he doesn't know what's going on. So eventually the police get called and there's about 10 policemen turn up and they kind of take him around the corner. But that's the kind of the exit, the way that we go out. So the police, are, he's absolutely fine. The police are saying, look, you, you need to leave now. Everyone else, look, it's empty. You need to go home now. So I kind of made, weaved my way through the police. They were asking for autographs. I said, no, you've got a job to do. And uh, eventually, <laughs> I, I'm presuming this is all behind me. So I, I go out to my car in the compound where all the trucks are for Sky. So I do a bit of faffing around. And then I, I drive out of the compound. So I'm presuming this has all been dealt with. Drive out of the compound onto the, the street that runs alongside the, the car park at Bramall Lane. And there's obviously like terraced houses and everything. And there's all parking spaces for the people that live in the houses. But there's there's no cars there. So I, I hadn't set my sat-nav for, to, to take me home the quickest route. So I think, oh, I better just pull in and sort my sat-nav out. I pull in, start filling about with my sat-nav. Next thing I know, someone's trying the passenger door of my car. I turn and it's this guy that had just been in the ground and I was absolutely, t- luckily, you know, when you drive a car and the door's automatically locked, what happens if he'd opened my door? Did he think I'm the most well-respected and talented co-commentator in the game? Or did he think I was a taxi? <laughs> or well, who did he think I was? I was driving a Skoda and no disrespect to Skodas. A lot of Skodas are taxis. But thank God that door didn't open because how I'm not a policeman. I can't talk him down or arrest him, can I? But imagine if he had got into Chinch's car. What, what, and actually sat in there. I'd have had to take him to my house and look after him. I was absolutely, t- no one's ever done that. I just couldn't believe it was the same guy. So I'm on three occasions. Two were fine and he was being perfectly fine. The third occasion frightened me to death. So welcome back fans, but do not try my car door. I'm too old. I could have a heart attack. Keep your correspondence coming to setpiecemenu at gmail.com. Also buy the merch at tpublic.com and don't forget to enter the SPM PLPL it's back at tinyurl.com forward slash setpiece menu please subscribe share rate and review as we humbly ask you to continue to find room for us in your podcast schedule thank you to Stephen to Andy to Rory and his parenting skills and Billy and to you all for listening <laughs> we'll be back with another setpiece menu for you to enjoy very soon indeed did he think you were Billy? can I, can I just say Skoda it is the co-com's choice um, not because no, you have, not because you have the choice. It's but big. I just think I don't know that this groundsman was. I think he was quite happy. To think, what you think I'm? You think I'm Billy Sharp, do you? Well, yeah, yeah, but you, you don't. You're like a gardener, and you've got a fork in your hand. The lad has clearly had too much to drink. He does not. Know, he knows you're not Billy Sharp, but oh, I don't know. It's just so. But again, it was just frightening. Very, very frightening indeed. Uh, you know, my my, my car. My car is my world, unless Steve is travelling with me, which happened, you know, many, many years ago. It's never going to happen. So are you only friends with Steve because he yes. just randomly got in your car? No, but I, I, I like Steve door. in my environment. Very politely allowed him to stay. I don't it's, mind it's being fight to the, buy with Steve. It's because I sit uh, in the front, so it, it takes away the impression that Chinch is actually an Uber driver. That that's true. Yes, I might start it, sitting back left, Chinch, just to just to reinforce. <laughs> no, don't do that. Don't do that. But let let's hope those days will come back where I can. You're the only person, really. Apart from Nikki, but I have to do that because we're married and Primrose because she needs to go to the nursery and back. You are the only one I'm comfortable in my car. I, drunken Sheffield United. And I'm a, I kill it. I'm a Wednesday player as well. 
So imagine if I'd have said, I know the city quite well. I played for Sheffield Wednesday. <laughs> what would have happened there? Because I'm a likeable guy. I just want to get to know people. But yeah, please don't try my car door. Don't worry. No one, no one remembers you playing for Sheffield Wednesday.